to Proverbs 21 and uh, look at some more of this. Uh, we will uh, study a, a little bit longer, uh, another 50 minutes or so, and then we'll uh, move on to some other things, other activities uh, for the day. Chapter 21, would somebody read verses 1 to 3? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, wherever he pleases. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Do you see the common denominator in those three verses? They all speak of what? The Lord. The Lord. These are uh, Proverbs on the Lord. I love verse 1 because if you stop and think about it, who is the most powerful human being? The king. And what part of us do we think we have the most freedom to control? Our thoughts, our heart. If the king's heart is something the Lord controls so strongly, it's like water that the Lord can just direct wherever he wants to, then it really shows that the Lord is in control. Precisely with the strongest person in the area of greatest freedom, the Lord is the one who rules it. And you think about that. You ever know anybody in the Bible that the Lord controlled their heart without them knowing it? Do you know any kings that the Lord used? Pharaoh, when um, the Israelites were leaving, he hardened his heart to make a point that God is God. Absolutely. And... What other kings ended up having their heart controlled by God? Cyrus. When he was motivated by God to liberate God's people and authorize them to go back to the promised land and build the temple. And Ahasuerus. That whole story of Esther. Xerxes and Nehemiah. Artaxerxes, yeah. Right. Yeah, Artaxerxes, and <laughs> uh, in, in, even in Ezra seven, when he sent Ezra back, and then when he sent Nehemiah back, you see lots of things uh, with with him and how God controlled him, and so forth and so on. So, ultimately, God's in control. That does not violate man's free will, but it means God kind of overrides that in the sense that He uses man's free will for His purpose. Pretty impressive, Stephen. Especially helpful to read this verse with the upcoming election. Yes, it's rather encouraging. The Lord's in charge a whole lot more than uh, our political parties are. He'll, he'll take care of things. All right. And then in verse 2, this is just what we were saying earlier, isn't it? <coughs> what does a man think about what he does? Right. He always thinks he's right. You know, we fool ourselves, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord knows you better than you know yourself. And even though you think you're right, the Lord knows when you are not. That's kind of scary, isn't it? It's so easy to convince ourselves we're right. Thoughts about that? Cameron. I think it's cool that um, in both of these verses, verse 1 and 2, 
the first one it mentions that his heart is um God controls the heart. This one it mentions that God um weighs the heart. And um I think this really applies to um us that even though we think that we're controlling what we're doing or what we're thinking, God still controls our heart. And even though we think what we are doing is right, God still weighs our hearts. And like um reminds me of Paul in the New Testament. He thought what he was doing was right. But God still judged him as wrong um, when he was persecuting um, Christians. And um, he thought he was destroying the Christians, but God used that to spread the gospel instead. Great one. Yeah. It's amazing what God can do, and it's amazing how God can take even the actions that people intend against God and use it for him. And then verse 3, God likes right living better than he likes worship. You know, we think, well, I'm doing the right things in church, so it doesn't matter if I don't live right on a daily basis. That is not true. God will not excuse your bad conduct just because... You go to church on Sunday and do the right stuff. That's what he's saying. God really looks at your life, not just at your religion. Comments? Cass? Um, my translation says to do, righteousness, uh, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Do you think that that's possibly referring back to Saul? And you heard it said about Saul that applying it that to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. Same principle, isn't it? Very same idea. And you see that a lot of times in, in prophets. Also, several prophets talk about that idea because they were so commonly thinking they were okay just because they went through the worship regardless of their life. Stephen? Uh, it's kind of interesting thinking about this word sacrifice and how it's used in the New Testament and how they were doing outward sacrifice, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, they were saying in Psalm 51, and then we're to be a living sacrifice to God, and that's a right life. That's the sacrifice of God. Good point. Okay. Um, four to eight. Honey eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. The violence of the wicked will drag them away, because they refuse to act with justice. The way of the guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. So, verse 4 the wicked thrive on pride and arrogance. That's their lamp. That's their life. That's, that's what they. That's always. That's about the only thing they think about. That's what, what what motivates them. That's what they act by. That's kind of sad, but that's really true. Um, verse five. This is a very good contrast. If I want to be prosperous, what do I need to do? <clears throat> work at it. Consistent, steady work is much better 
than some sort of a get-rich-quick scheme, some sort of a hasty burst. That's not going to be nearly as effective as if you get up every morning and you do consistent, disciplined, methodical work. That doesn't sound very good. Think about that in school. What's the best way to get good grades? Study every day or stay up all night the night before the test? <laughs> How many of you have stayed up all night the night before the test? <laughs> uh, we, we know about that. Do you really think that's a better plan than working consistently daily? No, it's not. Even if you manage to cram it all in there, it'll escape the moment you finish the test. And probably you'll just fall asleep during the test. <laughs> you know, it's it, it just in every area, consistent, disciplined, diligent work. Are you going to write a better paper if you do it diligently every week over a period of time? Or are you going to write a better paper if you start it the night before it's due? <laughs> You know, there's no question about the fact we're, we do a better job and it works better when we discipline ourselves to constantly be working. Diligence is better than cramming. Thoughts about that? We'll probably preach a better sermon if we start it a few days before it's due. <laughs> that might be a good application too. Uh, verse 6. What happens if you get your stuff with lies? It's away. Yeah, it won't last long. What goes around comes around. Dishonesty ends up evaporating. What we get dishonestly doesn't end up sticking with us. God is behind that. God sees to it that the things that are gained by deception are short-lived. Thoughts? And then verse uh, 7. A wicked man's violence boomerangs against him. Because if you're violent, you tend to invite violence. You know, can you think about a violent man in the Old Testament who ended up having the violence come back upon his own head? Haman. Haman. Samson, still not who I was thinking of, though both of them are great examples. Saul, I'm thinking of somebody else. Who had Abimelech. Yeah, the head gave it away, didn't it? Yes. He was a very violent man, and man, it just came right back on him, and a uh, woman uh, pushed a millstone out of the tower on top of his head, and uh, it didn't help him live very long. <laughs> Always shortens your lifespan when a millstone falls on your head. <laughs> Comments to verse 7? Yes, right. What did your version say? Now, the verse, I'm just saying that what the, what the verse says, the violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. Boomerang's my word, but that's what it's saying. It comes back on me. <laughs> that's the uh, Gary Fisher version. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, 
Verse 8. You've got the contrast between the guilty man and the pure man. And what's the difference between them? Their behavior. That's an important lesson. You are how you live. So you're either a righteous person or a wicked person based upon your conduct. Not based upon what you say about yourself or how you feel. It's your, it's your behavior that shows your character. So if you do bad stuff, you're a wicked person. If you do good stuff, you're a pure person. Somehow or other, we miss that. That seems rather fundamental. But we try to be a good person by just you know, thinking well or looking well or whatever. Well, if you want to be a good person, do the right things. It's as simple as that. Okay. I think it's funny, like in a lot of like movies or shows like that, it was like deep down I know you're a good person, or you have a good heart, and but right after they've done like a whole bunch of bad things. And to me, it always seems extremely contradictory. Like, if they really had a deep down had a good heart, then they would be acting on that. I have an idea that's what we want to believe to justify ourselves. We want to think that, well, even though I do bad, I'm really good deep down. That's just a deception. What I what I am is revealed by what I do, Brendan. One of the reasons the guilty man, one of the reasons why he's perverse, because someone with a guilty conscience is just all they're thinking about is just how to cover themselves up from people finding out who he is. Yes. Yeah. Good point. And that's very uh, unproductive and uh, even stressful. When you think about this, I was talking to somebody the other day who has lived a double life. He's tried to look good before Christians, and he's been really bad before worldly people. And I told him, I said, you know, what your life has been a matter of always trading your mask, always making sure you had the right mask on, depending on who you were with. I said, that's confusing and very stressful. He said, you're exactly right. It is. You've always got to make sure you're looking the way you're supposed to with these people. Well, when all you do is have a mask on, do you know how deep a mask goes? You cannot have a deep relationship with a mask. It's always shallow. You know, it's always unsatisfying. And you, what if you can get Christians to like you and to think highly of you because you managed to figure out how to look righteous? Does that really build up your self-image? <laughs> no, because they don't like you, they like your mask. Wonder what they'd think of if they knew you. <laughs> it really, it's so, it's, it is stressful, it is confusing, and it doesn't help. Much better than to try to look good, just be good. You do the right thing. Your looks will take care of itself. Other comments? Okay, um, 9 to 19. That if you dwell in the corner of a house, and the house shares with the home, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his life. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself, 
and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind your back draws wrath. But it is joy, it is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the world of the A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked should be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than the contentious and angry world. Okay. So, verse 9, well, you'd be better living uh, in the corner of your roof than inside the house with a contentious woman. A woman who is always complaining and nagging and creating strife makes home life unbearable. You'd be better off exposing yourself to nature than having to live with this stormy woman. That's true. What do you learn from that? Stay away from them. Yeah. Like maybe don't even marry one of them. That would be a good idea, Riley. Well, that's for sure. This is not saying to be mean. Really, you know, it might. I think it would say to unmarried men. Think about that before you get married. Some contentious women are pretty. But they're still difficult to live with. And the woman that you marry is usually a woman that you date, so don't date people like this. Well, have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen a guy dating a girl, maybe for quite a while, and they always are fighting each other? And they break up and they get back together, and they break up and they get back together, and they break up and get back together. Would you think it a wise idea to marry in those circumstances? You know, maybe the fact that you're not getting along well while you're dating would be a sign it wouldn't work well to be married. Uh, you know, simple things like that are wise things. You can also apply this from the standpoint of a woman. Women can make their homes unbearable by just constantly complaining, being negative, wanting to fight and argue and quarrel. That's a harder thing to avoid than what it seems like. Because if you're not happy with how things are going, it seems like the best thing to do is to keep arguing and, and fussing about it. But do you know how men respond to that? Really badly? They're probably not going to listen. They're probably just going to become resentful. And so it's probably not going to help I think, so this is a lesson for wives in this situation. That's probably not the best way to deal with that situation because it's probably just going to drive him away. John? Before the holidays, I was talking with a man I work with and asked him what his plans were the rest of the week. He was going to take off extra time before the holidays. And he, his comment was, why would I want to go home? He said, if I go home, my wife's just going to have a big list of things for me to do. You need to fix this. You need to do that. He said, I'd rather be here. And I thought, boy, what a sad state that someone would rather be at work than to be at home, in their home, with the person that they married. And I just thought that was just truly sad, but this is the picture. It is very sad. It's very common. 
which is really sad. Um, you know, wives need to make their homes places where their husbands want to be. You know, because it's so true that the wife, the mother, and the home has a great impact on the happiness and well-being of the family. <laughs> This is not just him, but my barber has a saying that he always says, you know, <laughs> mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, she has a big impact on how the family is. J.D.? Uh, <clears throat> I feel like the thing I hear people say, uh, whether they're saying it out loud or not, is, well, I gotta keep dating this person even though we always fight, or I gotta marry this person even though we always fight, because that's better than being alone, and I'm just afraid of ending up alone. Well, apart from the fact that that's such a selfish way of looking at life, like it's all about you getting what you are wanting out of life, I mean, I think this proverb shows that no, actually it's not even better to, to be married, even if it's a bad marriage and being alone. It's much better to be alone and be content than to be uh, bound to someone who really makes you miserable. That's a great point. And the other point is desperation doesn't make for good choices. You know, why do I think that the only two choices, either I marry this woman I fight with all the time or I stay single the rest of my life? There might be a third option. <laughs> there might be a better relationship, either if you change or if you find a woman that is has a better temperament. I mean, don't just write it off as if, well, it's her or nothing. You know, and there's plenty of miserable married men who would say, I wish I had stayed single. Think about that. I mean. You know, just being desperate or being impulsive. Of all the times I don't need to act hastily, it's when I'm choosing to marry. You know, that's a time when I need to really be careful. It's not that I shouldn't marry, but it's that I ought to think carefully and recognize the impact of that. How is my husband or wife going to affect my spiritual life, first of all? And how easy or hard will it be to live together? <laughs> It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to marry somebody you can't get along with. Why would you want to? Other thoughts? Well, look at verse 10. Here you have a wicked man. And how is this wicked man in the first part of the verse? Yes. We use other words besides desire. We would say this man has what? A craving. A craving. Well, what's our stronger word for that than that? Lust. Lust or obsession. obsession. We got another one we use all the time. Addiction. Here's a man who's a who's a, a, a uh, uh, evil addict. You know, he's addicted to evil. That may come in various forms. You know, there's a lot of kinds of things we can be addicted to that are wrong. Well, when he is addicted to some evil. What does he do in the last part of the verse? His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Which means what? He's going to hurt his neighbor to feed his addiction. You know, he's not going to respect his neighbor. Everybody around him will be sacrificed if they're an obstacle to satisfying his desire. That is the way evil addicts are. 
there's nobody they care about other than their sin that they are determined to carry out. That's something to think about. Uh, very, very true. You see so many principles in this that the more you live life, the more you say, man, that is right on. And that one is. Comments? In verse 11, if you punish a scoffer, there is a good impact on two people. On the scoffer, he gets what's coming to him, he gets punished, but who else benefits if you punish a scoffer? Yes. Neutral observers who are naive will learn from that. If, uh, if everybody who steals gets punished, what do other people learn? Not to steal. So your punishment of the evildoer actually helps other people not to do the same evil. That there is a deterrent effect to punishment. But as for a wise man, what do you need to do to teach him a lesson? Just teach him. Just teach him. A wise man doesn't even need the punishment. And he doesn't need to see someone else punished. He just listens to instruction and he learns. That's a good plan. You know, that's the best way to be. Be the kind of person that listens to the teaching and you don't have to learn the hard way. How much does Proverbs say that? The importance of listening to correction, discipline, instruction, teaching, etc. Thoughts and comments? Cameron. Is it possible that the um, scoffer at the beginning of the verse could also be the naive that is learning? Could be the naive scoffer and then he gets punished for it with you learning? Uh, no, I think by definition the scoffer is a rebellious, evil person. And the point is, he doesn't learn. He just gets punished. It's the innocent, naive one that learns. You know, that's the problem with being a scoffer. Even being punished, they don't learn. I think by definition the scoffer doesn't learn from anything. Alright, uh, verse 12 this one uh, is variously interpreted, probably in your translations. When it says the righteous one considers the house of the wicked, I don't even know the answer to this, but do some of you have translations where righteous one is capitalized? And do some of you have translations where it's not? What's his righteous God? Yes. The question is, is this righteous one mean the righteous one that is in God? Or a righteous person. I think it's better to take it as meaning God. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked turning the wicked to ruin. In other words, God punishes the wicked. Crime doesn't pay. I think that's what the passage means. It's a translator's choice as to whether or not he capitalizes how he understands the verse. There were no capitals in the original. But, but I think that's the point here, is God causes wicked people to be punished. I have a note that the word in verse 11, when the wise is instructed, 
Mm -hmm. And the word in 12, the righteous one considers that it's the same word. Okay. You know, they, they, they take note of, they observe. Good point. Okay. Very good. It's what we need to do. Learn from what the Lord teaches and does. Other thoughts? In verse uh, 13, what will happen if we do not respond to the cry of the poor? Exactly. When we cry, God won't hear us. Do you? Can you think of an example in the Bible of someone who didn't hear the cry of the poor and then his cry was not heeded? Absolutely. Remember the rich man? Lazarus was at his doorstep daily and he didn't care that he was died and went to hell and he was pleading for mercy. Well, he wasn't listened to in the sense that he was not responded to. You know, um, so he who, who would not give a crumb on the earth did not receive a drop of water in hell. You know, you get what's coming to you. We need to be merciful to those who need help. We need to have a merciful, compassionate nature um, as opposed to a self-centered, stingy nature. Uh, God has been merciful to us. We want his mercy, then we ought to share that. We ought to show that. Thoughts? Jenny? What are your, your thoughts or other thoughts on the bouncing? What Proverbs says about giving, being generous, but also being very careful, like, you know, not, you don't give charity to a stranger or that. Uh, just, I, mean, I speak all the time asking someone hard to know how to handle that. Okay, yeah. Would this mean we ought to co-sign a loan for somebody we don't even know? No, it's not saying that. He's not saying put yourself in a financial obligation you can't pay. He's saying be a generous, <laughs> compassionate person who's eager to help when you can. You know, one of the things about co-signing a loan is it's a continuing obligation. And, and if I can't even discharge that, then I'm committing myself to something I can't do. So if this is not the idea of doing more than we can. Wouldn't even be the idea of, you know, doing something for somebody who needs to do it for themselves. It's the idea of showing compassion to those who have needs, and we have the means to, to satisfy them. Thank you. Parable where there was a king and then a guy owed him, and the king had mercy on him, and then the guy went to the other. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For us to receive God's enormous mercy and refuse to give a little mercy to anyone else is really uh, perverse. We have been blessed so much by God. He's been so generous and so gracious. It's only right for us to be generous and gracious for those around us. Excellent point. Other thoughts? Alright, in verse uh, 14, I think this is an interesting proverb. This is again an observational proverb. It's not necessarily recommending this. I do think though there's some things to learn from it. A gift in secret subdues anger, when a bribe in the bosom strong wrath. Uh, you know, money talks and a bribe will will really change things. It'll really help out. Somebody can, the judge can be really upset with you and if you get him enough money under the table, he'll be nice to you. 
You know, um, your wife can be really upset with you, and a nice bouquet of flowers, she can be really happy. Uh, that's not so much a bribe, but that'd be a gift. <laughs> but it's the idea that gifts overcome wrath. Bribes are effective. Well, think about that. If you were really angry with somebody and they gave you something you really, really wanted, could that help you not be so angry with them? I, I get a few nods, yeah. Well, if, if, if money would, would diminish your anger, why wouldn't the word of the Lord? If, you, if you'd be not angry if they gave you enough, why would you not be not angry if God told you not to be? We say, I just couldn't control myself. Oh yeah, you could have controlled yourself. A, a nice gift would have been big enough to keep you in control. It's not that we can't control ourselves, it's that we don't choose to. I think that's an interesting outcome of this proverb. I don't know, what do you think about all that? John? Someone said this about 13 and 14 together. Some people may be willing to give a gift or a bribe to soothe human wrath, but will not make a gift to the poor to avert divine anger. Yeah, so we want people to like us, we'll give a bribe. We don't care about what the Lord thinks of us, we won't give to the poor. Yeah, good point. Very good. Micah? It really speaks to us showing mercy to people who can't really help us in return. If, we, if all we give is things to people who can help us out, that's speaking to our character, and it also speaks to our character if we <coughs> extend a hand to somebody who really can't help us. Good point. Yes. Because when we give to the people who can give back, that's more self-focused. We're just doing that to help ourselves. When I give to somebody who can't help me back, can't pay me back, then I'm really doing it out of a heart of generosity and grace. <laughs> Good point. Other thoughts? Cameron. Going along with the how we sometimes accept um, man's offer of money and not God's offer. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, um, it had been talking about how we should be going for others to see things, and they give their reward. And in the verse 2 it says, True that I say to you, they have their reward in full. We have such a greater reward in heaven. And we get a choice. Do we want the reward here that they're bribing us with, or do we want the one in heaven that God's giving us? We should be um, quick to accept God's offer way before they start offering money themselves. Yeah, so often we're more interested in what we can get in this life instead of what really matters. Very good. Ty. I was going to say, I think, I mean, we see in these passages, just given a clear reason. Um, to give and to have a giving attitude, but I think it reminds us how important giving is. Um, you know, be it to other people, be it to um, congregations that we're part of. Um, it just reminds me, you know, in the Senate, they tell us with senators to get to know them and to understand, you know, what it is they like, um, especially when it comes to their snacks and stuff. You know, that way you can aid them. Um, Senator Tom Weiss, who loves Diet Coke, here's my guy. So, you know, that's just little things you learn how to do that. But it just reminds us how important it is when. when Build an attitude where we give, when we're giving of ourselves, when we're giving of our monetary, when we're giving the things we have. Um, how that speaks to people. Um, I think that's just very, very important. 
Very good. All right, look at verse 15. Uh, righteous people love justice. Wicked people hate it. You know why wicked people hate justice, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it shows what, what we're like. Justice for a wicked person is going to be painful. You know, and so how we respond to justice should, kind of shows what, what our character is like. You know, it was always interesting to me. I spent lots of time in prisons visiting. And uh, the prisoners commonly didn't like the same judges that I did. The prisoners thought the good judges are the ones that let the criminals off the hook. You know, non-criminals generally don't like those kind of judges. It all depends on whether or not you've done something wrong that should justly be punished or not. It was really interesting because that was really the philosophy. And they'd talk about it and, you know, they'd be very much against the, you know, firm judges. But you can see why. When you do wrong, you don't want to be punished for it. You don't like the people who do justice when you're doing wrong. When you're doing right, then you'd want justice to be done. So whether or not you want justice to be done probably tells whether or not you're doing right or wrong. Well, what about 16? Uh, what happens to the man who wanders away from the way of understanding? Really boring company. Yeah. He's going to rest in the assembly of the dead. Probably not the place you want to rest. But if you abandon the way of wisdom, you'll ruin your life and you'll go to an early grave. I mean, so true. You know, because when we don't act with wisdom, we usually cause all kinds of serious problems to ourselves, sometimes even death. Um, and we see that all the time. People who leave God's way and pursue the wicked way hurt themselves. Verse 17 he who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Why is that? It's expensive. That's one thing. When you spend a lot of money on just stuff to have fun with and to enjoy, well, what's the outcome of that? Yeah, you're going to lose your money on just frivolous stuff you like. So that's going to hurt you. And people do that all the time. I mean, you know, you can take people, you know, like young people. Some of you have jobs, but you may not have to help with the family expenses. So you have all the money for yourself. And what do you spend it on? What would be the typical things young people would spend their money on? Starbucks. Starbucks. <laughs> food in general. Games. Entertainment. Entertainment. Toys. Toys. Okay, uh, significant <laughs> others. Gas. Vacation. Well, most of those things, how quickly are they used up? You know, the things you eat and drink and play and have fun with, they're over just like that. So if you're the kind of person who spends your money 
for wine and oil. You know, you, you love the things you can consume. You're not going to be rich because you've eaten them all up. You've drank them all up. They're not there anymore. Those aren't very smart things to spend your money on if you want to have any money left. And, and by the same token, he who loves pleasure is a poor man. I mean, you know, self-indulgent behavior in general. If you love pleasure, you're probably not going to work very hard. Probably not going to be very diligent. May not even be very reliable on showing up at the job. So you're probably not going to, uh, you know, gain any money. Comments? Think that might be a good lesson for us? Evan? I see a contrast here in the two uh, phrases. Okay. You've got someone who has money that's going to become poor, and someone who is, that is not rich will never be covered. And both of them, as you were saying, is a self-indulgence. And, and, and so, you know, there's a, there's a caution here that that self-indulgent attitude is very detrimental no matter what our financial situation is. You're exactly right. It's not good to love pleasure and just want everything for me. John? One of the Bible paraphrases reads this way from verse 17. You're addicted to thrills? What an empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is never satisfying. That's true too. Not only does it leave me poor, but it doesn't give any residual value in any sense, Stephen. It's interesting, like, I'm assuming this is like talking about sinful pleasures and worldly empty pleasures. Because there's a real sense in which, as well, like, we need to delight in the Lord. And when our pleasures are good spiritual things, they can be helpful. Good point. And there is great carryover value in those pleasures. Other thoughts? Jamie. I think it is really easy just to go off what he was saying. To, because you're not spending on sinful things, you know, if it's self-indulgent things, to feel like, well, this is fine because it's my money, so I can use it for things satisfying for me. And uh, really, it may end up being sinful because you're self-indulging, but we just need to really be careful about that. Uh, maybe especially for, for young people when they first get a job and they first have uh, money to burn. It's a great point. You know, a couple of things about young people and the money they start earning. It disturbs me to observe that many young people do not give to God and to others when they start earning money. They keep it all for themselves. I don't understand that. Many times young people have less responsibility. They have less bills to pay. They could share their wealth, their, what they're making, more than what their parents could. And yet they may be very stingy. They may not contribute in the contribution. They may not you know, give to others when they have, see that they have a need of it. Because they're all addicted to you know, blowing their money on this or that. That's really sad. And then secondly... You know, if you're 14 or 16 or 18, and you're living at home, 
And your parents are giving you your food and your place to live, and they paid the light bill and the water bill and, and all that. Who knows, some of them may be paying for your transportation and you know, maybe doing a lot of things for you. Um, and, and whatever money you make, you're paying the payments on your cool car, and you're buying a bunch of food and stuff when you have plenty to eat at home, but it's not what you want. Well, think about what's going to happen to you. In five years, you're going to want to get married. And then you're going to need a place to live. And then you're going to need other things that will be really important to you then. Maybe you're going to need your own car. You know, you're going to... And like, well, you've made all this money in the last few years, but you don't have anything. Because you ate all the money up. With fun, or with food, or with whatever. And so here, now you have things that are more substantial you need, but you don't have any resources to, to provide for them. It's foolish to use our money self-indulgently. It's foolish spiritually because God wants us to use it for others, but it's also foolish from the standpoint of our own future. Because one of these days, I mean, I tell 10 and 12 and 14 year olds, you know, the money you get, hang up to it. You have nothing, many 10 or 12 or 14 year olds have nothing they need to spend money on. And buying a car when they're 16 or 18 or 20, or you know, something even more significant, education or whatever when they get older, may be a lot more valuable even to them than the little trinkets they wasted their money on when they were younger. It's really wise not to be self-indulgent in every sense of the word. There's so many good things about these Proverbs that if we follow them, even our life here would be much better off. Thoughts? So. I remember asking a, a young young man one time who I knew was working had had money to uh, anonymously go buy the lunch for a young married couple who I knew you know money was tight for them, and he did. And he thanked me later because that was not an intuitive thought for him, but in doing that, he he found the blessing in that. We need to challenge each other more that way. Absolutely. I've occasionally challenged some kids, young people who have some jobs and things like that, pay like camp fees for their friends who don't have any money to pay that and things like that. And, uh, you know, at my camp last year, there was, there was a, a camper who, who told me, I didn't ask or anything, he said, you know, I want to pay for somebody in the camp that wouldn't have the money to pay it otherwise. And uh, he doesn't live anywhere around here. But I thought that was really cool. I let him do that. I encouraged him to do that. I thought that was, wow, that was generous. I mean, he was working just a regular job. You know, he didn't have a lot of expenses. He's a teenager. And so he wanted to use his money that way. Man, there's lots of opportunities to help. I know several young people, last year when Carl Ballard was needing, you know, support to go to Brazil, several young people, gave him money and and helped in that way. What a blessing. That's a great thing to do. If we get in the habit of giving generously, it really helps us realize that money doesn't matter. It helps us avoid a lot of the materialism, I think. It just kind of changes the way we think about it. Good point. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. The wicked's a ransom for the righteous, 
and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. What he's saying is, a lot of times the wicked person suffers the harm that was going to happen to the righteous, like Haman and Mordecai. Haman got hung on the gallows he built for Mordecai. There's <laughs> so a lot of times that God, because he's a just God in control, the wicked man will end up suffering what was designed to hurt the righteous person. Again, kind of the boomerang effect. And then verse 19 again, it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexious woman. You know, wherever you have to go to get away from her is better. Um, even the housetop might be a little too close. Maybe you better go to the desert. These are, these are wise sayings. This is, this is accurate. Um, and so, again, wise selection of mates and wise behavior when we are married. Very good things to think about. Comments or thoughts on all that? All right, well, I think we need to uh, stop here. But it's uh, really 